We're going to go into scripture reading this morning, and we have two passages to look at today. The first is in John 7, and the second is in 2 Corinthians 3. So we'll start with John 7, verses 1 through 8. Um, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. If you want to turn there, it's on page 1626, or you know, pull out your phone, anything else? John 7, 1 through 8. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that their disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, Show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And then if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to read verses 12 through 18. Second Corinthians 3. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Becca. Hey, everyone. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about um, the unbrandability of God as he reveals himself, and we've gone through a number of subjects. And what I mean by brandability is something to be sufficiently simplified is to be totally simple for us, no work involved, and that it be marketed to our tastes and desires, and that in many ways, in the most important ways, God reveals himself to be neither able to be simplified enough so it takes no work on our, our, on our behalf. Instead, he calls up to be complicated enough in bearing the image of God to be his worshipers and to belong to him as his children, right? And he doesn't mark it to our tastes. He actually calls us to repent of our tastes. And he's seeking, he seeks to transform them to something more beautiful, more wholesome, more truthful, so that he can, we can be transformed rather than he can be changed into something he isn't. This morning I'm going to be talking about his revelation, which if you think about branding, like if there's one thing you got to get right in branding, it's your communication, right? You got to get communication right. You simplify it, you get your vision, and now you got to communicate. And um, if you can't get communication right, you're never going to get anywhere. And most people would say communication, when you're trying to brand something, needs to be simple. 
It needs to be easy. It needs to be accessible. It should never be two clicks away if it can just be one click away, right? And it should never be conveyed in writing if there could be a video. And if a picture is, then that's even better. You know what I mean? Um, people shouldn't have to think. You shouldn't need this, right? You should be able to put your brain on the shelf, and that shouldn't matter because people should be doing the work for you in communicating so that you don't have to work. Does that make sense? Um, we might not say it quite that lazily and explicitly, but generally speaking, we feel like if you want to be known, you need to put yourself out there. You need to put out there the content that other people need to know about. And in an age of, like, we have social media, like any, like most of us put ourselves out there constantly all the time. God has had spiritual technologies from eternity past. Why can't he just put himself out there? Why is that so difficult? Why is that so hard, right? Then we would know more about him. That would be great. Other people would know more about him. It would make telling people about Jesus easier. And a lot more people would be Christians, which would make our lives as Christians easier, right? Um, the problem is, is that for a lot of these sorts of assumptions, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know why the, our assumptions don't make any sense when they seem so obvious to us. But God really isn't—that's really not what God is doing. But that's what, um, what the Bible calls unbelief always thinks, right? So um, that idea, God, why don't you just make an exhibition of yourself? Just put yourself out there, then whatever you're trying to accomplish will get accomplished. And that's exactly what Jesus' brothers, before they believed in him, said in— John chapter 7. They said, listen, you're going around Galilee. That's like me having a ministry of miracles and going up to Ryan Lander to do it. Do you understand? It's like, what? Why would you do something this big where there isn't anyone, right? Other than great walleye lakes. Um, he says, so Jesus went around Galilee purposely staying away from Judea. Jesus knows it's because the Jews were waiting to take his life. His brothers don't know that, apparently. He says, but when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, that's when all the Jewish people from all of Israel had to come to Jerusalem. So they'd all be one place. So if you make an exhibition of yourself during the Feast of Tabernacles, everybody knows about you, right? Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles that you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers do not believe in him. Do you see, do you see the, the word for there? What John is trying to say is, that clearly obvious statement. This seems like it would be a normal attitude that we're all like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. John's like, you see, they believed that because they didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah. And because they didn't believe, they just, they just were, they were basically kind of taunting him and saying, well, why wouldn't you do this? And so Jesus says to them, the right time for me has not yet come for you. Any time is right. Like if you want to make an exhibition of yourself, any time is fine for you. Because you're not trying to do anything, but just make, make an exhibition of yourself. He's like, you have no idea all the angles I'm working. You have no idea what I'm really trying to do here. So you have no idea what the timing of any of my actions would be. Right? He says, for you anytime is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what, I do, what it does is evil. So notice that one of the reasons why anytime is it right for him is because his life isn't just doing miracles. The most important thing about Jesus' ministry is the moral confrontation built into it. And because there is a moral confrontation built into it, and because human beings hate being morally confronted, the timing, the way, the style, all those details matter immensely when if all we want to do is make an exhibition of ourselves, none of it would matter. Just put on the costume and jump in the middle of traffic, you know? He says, therefore, you go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast because the right time for me has not yet come, right? God's revelation is not a personal exhibition. I know we would all love that. On some level, we'd all just like, just put it all out there, put it to be all obvious, all right in our faces, all where everybody could see it. It would make it so much easier for us, we think. And God doesn't do it. And part of what 
trusting God looks like is to assume that he has reasons for this that we would be interested in. Does that make sense? Um, now, this morning, my goal is not to tell you all of the reasons why God reveals himself the way he does. God speaks and shows himself in lots of different ways. I have a six-volume set in my library by Carl F.H. Henry. It's 3,056 pages. The whole thing is on how God has spoken and shown himself, what we can know about why that is, and how it demonstrates his authority over all humanity and all of creation. It's not short. And he has to cover a lot of things. And it's designed to be pointed at, like, modern people. Um, what I'm talking about this morning is simply why God's revelation— can't be branded. Why he can't make it simple enough in order to our tastes so that we would like it, we would agree with how he does it. Does that make sense? Now, in some ways, the closest um, example I can think of easily relative to like what he's doing is it's kind of like his revelation is kind of like direct directions for the assembly of some kind of product. Have you done this before where you order stuff and you're like, you want to put it together? Some great thing that comes. There's, and so there's, there's basically three versions of how this goes. One is, is that you just order something and there's no assembly required. That's the best. That's the one we all want, right? The second one is you order something and it's clear that the person who wrote the instructions did not do it whilst putting the thing together. And probably English wasn't their first language. And there's something going on with the engineering so that it can be put together a number of different ways. And it's not clear from the instructions how it's supposed to be done, which is mostly pictures. And you can like, if you put, and if you put it together wrong, you can ruin it so that when you figure it out and you reverse course and you put it together right, it's bent and you can't do it, right? And then the third is like, you order something, it has to be put together, but it's like, it can only go together one way. The directions are really clear and you put it together and the thing goes together and it's fantastic, right? Now, generally speaking, relative to God's revelation, what we all want is number one. Just a straightforward exhibition, no assembly required. It's totally obvious. We don't have to think about it. It's not a moral confrontation. It's just out there. We all know God. Isn't that fantastic, right? The second one is what most people think God is doing, which is like, this didn't get engineered properly. I don't even know what you're talking about. These two things don't even seem to go together. Where are the details I need to make this work, right? And, and in reality, the third is the closest one to reality. That we're putting something together that's difficult, that's a little beyond us maybe even, but that, um, but that is engineered beautifully and is actually described adequately. However, it doesn't actually come close enough because it still leaves the wrong impression on, on us in terms of like what God is doing and the angles he's actually working. Let me—I'm going to read you part of a story. Um, it's a little longish, but I think that it illustrates this really well. Peter was drawn in by a direct ad in social media for an entertainment system that was like nothing he'd ever seen. It was techie, and he, he was techie, and he loved being inside the experience of movies and games— he was always trying to get his wife, Ella, to watch more with him, and she didn't really seem to like going out. Maybe she would love this too. There was a ton of articulate, positive reviews, so in an impulsive way that was pretty rare, he bought it. It wasn't cheap. Assembly was exciting, um, but involved. The direction stated it required two people, and his wife agreed to help him. However, it didn't take long for the fun to leave. Something about the instructions frustrated Peter, and he didn't realize he was getting testy and ordering Ella around. Finally, she asked if she could look at the directions too, and when he snapped at her, be patient, she decided she was done. Peter told himself that he expected this. Ella didn't see things through. One of her flaws was, she won't do what it takes. That's why the relationship was kind of cold. Peter knew he could do it by himself. The directions probably assumed two idiots for two people, and that he could get this done himself if he put his mind to it. But he couldn't. The more he tried, the more stuck he was. 
He couldn't figure out what to do, and he couldn't try possible solutions without four hands. Finally, he got so angry, he strangely burst into tears. Sitting on the floor with parts still in his hand, Peter found himself sobbing, angry, frustrated, completely stuck. He couldn't remember ever feeling this way in his adult life. Ella flashed into his mind. She had abandoned him when he needed her help. But then he saw it. She was glad to help him in the beginning. She tried to be part of the work and even worked with him leading. Maybe she could have handled him better, but he drove her away. And then he felt the panic of moral insight. Not just doing this. That's what he always did. This unit was just one more way of trying to get her to be with him on his terms. He'd been treating her like this entertainment unit their whole relationship. Something he could make, something he could control, something he could use, and think that he was the good guy all along. And now he realized he was as stuck with her as he was with it. Everything was a mess. And there was no way forward with just him, no matter how much discipline or intelligence he expended. Peter sat there for 30 minutes with wet cheeks in the quiet mind of clarity. Finally, he emerged to where his wife was busy on her laptop. Peter apologized for how he treated her, told her of what he came to realize in the basement. The tears came again for both of them. Ella jumped up and embraced him in a way he couldn't remember feeling in all their time together, like she wanted to put a loving, cheering exclamation point of affection on what he had just shared with her. She kissed him, softly but quickly, and said almost playfully, then let's put the pieces together. The unit first. From there, the unit almost assembled itself. Four hands and a couple of pieces of strangely obscure knowledge from Ella, and the unit was together. And for at least the first few nights, that's where it sat, unused. Peter and Ella sat at the table, his quiet eyes locked on her face as she shared and smiled into the night. A week later, Peter was telling a friend about the unit and how the whole episode, episode had turned out. His friend had never heard of the company, and Peter did a search to show him. Nothing. He looked up at his feed. No repeat ad. When he got home, he looked up the address of the company. There was nothing there. After considerable work contacting the social media company, he found out that the ad that he saw was marketed only once and to only one user. It was linked to a website that was only active for a total of two hours. He had just read this on his screen when Peter got a text. I see you're looking for me. Meet me at bench four at River Park at 3 p.m. Don't bring a camera or a recording device. He went. An older Eastern European man, looking man, sat next to him but faced forward. You were stuck, and both of you were unhappy. The point was never the product. The product was a sort of intervention. My client knew that you wouldn't seek help and that you couldn't hear the truth from anyone but yourself or you'd dismiss them as attacking you or not understanding the details of your life. So my client asked me to make, asked me to try to help you another way. After my research, the unit was the best idea for an intervention that had a high likelihood of working without bringing your wife in. We feared she wouldn't be a good enough actor if she knew. Wait, so Ella isn't in on this? She isn't your client? No. She could have never found me, afforded me, or known to look for me. Then who is your client? Does it matter? They're clearly someone who cares about you, about your healing and your happiness. They're willing to pay an enormous cost. My services are not cheap. How much was it? 
you don't want to know, and I couldn't tell you if I wished to. But I have scheduled you an appointment with someone I think that can help you if you're open to it now, Thursday at 4.45 p.m. The old man turned and looked him in the face. He handed Peter a small card. Will you go? We, we don't have any mechanism for understanding what God is actually doing and how he reveals himself until we recognize that everything that he's doing is serving a particular end. His self-revelation is a rescue intervention for human beings, for all of us. And because we, our problem is mainly moral, it takes the form of a moral intervention. And it's not obvious, or we would just rebel, and it is designed to work amongst us all. It is unspeakably complex to accomplish a very simple result. Repentance and faith, redemption, and ultimately glorification. Now, there's a, a few reasons why it has to be this way that God reveals all through Scripture. The first is, is that we are hard to talk to, we human beings. We're hard to talk to. Um, we are pretty narrow in our perspective. If you look at Adam and Eve um, uh, being deceived by the serpent, you know, they knew about the God, they knew about the tree, they knew they weren't supposed to eat from the tree, but they didn't even know a fairly, fairly key piece of information, that the snake was a liar. Now, technically, they didn't need to know that to make the right decision. But they didn't know what they didn't know. Human beings have incredibly narrow perception. The book of Job is another example. Job is suffering. There's five guys that put their minds together to sort out why people suffer. They're pretty smart. It's some of the best moral philosophy on the nature of suffering in the history of anything that's ever been written. And they're 100% completely wrong because they have no idea what's going on. Right? It's, it's not just that, though. It's not just that we're limited. It's that we don't want to know the truth. This is one of the most fundamental truths about Christian faith. Um, and you're not supposed to believe it just because psychology has proven it in the last 50 years. Uh, we've known that, like, resourceful, thoughtful people that observed human beings behave have known this all along. And it's been um, in the Bible from the very first pages to the very last pages. Human beings don't really want to know the truth. We want to do whatever we want. And we want to know whatever leads to us being able to do whatever we want. That is, we don't like moral confrontations. We don't want to know the truth. We want to be hypocrites, and we want to be able to be evil. The most clearly clear exposition of this in the Bible is in Romans chapters 1 through 3, where the Apostle Paul tries to lay this out really clearly. In chapter 1, he says that we are truth suppressors, that that's something that we just, we do in relationship to creation. What we tend to do is, instead of looking at creation and seeing the ultimate God behind him to thank and worship, we make creation an end in itself. And that's the way we look at the world, because when we make creation an end in itself, we're above that creation, because we're human beings and bear the image of God. We know that we are. If we would have looked to God, we would be beneath God in a relationship of submission, and we don't want that. And by making creation end in itself, we come up with these moral categories that we think we have a handle on, but we are always naturally hypocrites about, th about them. Even when we accept some of God's revelation, like in chapter 2, he's talking about the Jewish people who have an enormous amount of revelation, the whole, the whole of what we call the Old Testament, two-thirds of the Bible. And they have all that moral revelation, so they're good people, right? And the answer is no. They take certain parts of it and apply it for themselves to justify themselves, take other parts to attack other people, to condemn others, and by that dynamic of hypocrisy, they justify themselves and do exactly what they want to do, and they condemn others so they can do to them whatever they want. We're moral truth suppressors, creation truth suppressors, moral truth suppressors, and then you get into chapter 3, and um, 
there's this whole litany of um, just, it says, um, our feet rush to do evil, our throats are open graves, right? He lays out how human beings, not only do we suppress the truth and not want to know it in terms of creation and God's existence, and not only do we suppress the truth morally and not want to see how we act hypocritically towards other people, he said, we're not even good. We suppress the truth, it says, in our wickedness. The fact is, is that our selfishness isn't just selfishness. It's not just making ourselves important. It's malice. I mean, sometimes we think that we're being, like, really honest when we say that thing I did is selfish. Right? That's like calling idolatry self-interest. No, when we do things that are selfish, that is inordinately favor ourselves and justify ourselves to the injustice we perpetrate on others, which is called sin, that's not just selfishness, it's malice. It is hatred towards the nature of the universe, rebellious treason against it to put ourselves in the place of God so that we can do whatever we want, to whomever we want, however we want. And we don't want to know how full our hearts of that. We don't want to be intervened with, right? So we're hard to talk to, but it turns out too that God is hard for us to listen to. Right? If you look at um, the places in Scripture where God most directly and explicitly reveals himself to people, they're terrified, and they don't want to be part of it. Right? And it's a gift when he does it. But they don't find it that way. For example, in the book of Exodus, there's this place where the people have been brought out from Egypt through these incredible miracles. God has provided for them in a number of ways. He's released them from slavery. They've received a liberation right? They come into the desert, and they finally come to Mount Sinai, where God is going to tell them what it's going to mean to have a covenant relationship with him, that they will be his people, and he will be their God, right? And he does this one-time thing where he comes and descends on Mount Sinai, and he's going to invite the people, all of the people, to come up and meet him in person, right? And so it says that the whole Mount Sinai is guarded off while God descends, and there's a moment where those guards are taken away, and the people are invited to come and meet God, And he comes down in this thick cloud, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's this huge trumpet blast to signal that it's time for them to come, and they'll be safe in coming. They won't be killed, right? And this is what happens. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and they heard the trumpet, and they saw the smoke, mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They they stayed at at a distance, and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Do you see what he's saying? God has explicitly said they will be safe if they follow his instructions and coming up. But they want a mediator. They're like, no, Moses, you do it. You can talk to us. We're not going in there, right? And then Moses pleads with them. He says to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So you see, the fear is good fear, right? And they don't want it. They don't want the good fear. But he's like, no, if you realize that this is what God is like, God is this thundering reality over all things, and you're going to meet him, and it's, it's going to put in you this thing called the fear of the Lord, and it's going to restrain you from being full of malice and hatred and hypocrisy and self-justification and treating the world like it's an idol rather than knowing God for who he is. It's going to free you in a way you can't even imagine. And they're like, no. And they say to him, so the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. If you're going to get something tattooed across your back, that's not a bad verse, okay? The people stayed at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. That sentence divides humanity, is what the Bible teaches. 
all the way through. That's the intervention. It's terrifying. The intervention in the Bible is always terrifying. But it's good, and it's intriguing, and it's—you have no idea where it's going to lead. But God's pledge of good faith is behind it. Right? And so what happens is, is that it doesn't—what we need to take from this is, like, it doesn't have to be this way. Right? How many people were willing to enter the thick darkness to find out what God was really like? And the answer is one in a nation. One person. Who would be the type of Christ. But this is typical humanity. Right? The call of faith, when God calls out to us, he's always calling us to be not like typical humanity. That's why Jesus says that the path is narrow. That the path to him isn't typical. But it's terrifying because what it means is you're willing to walk into the thick darkness where God is. Does that make sense? We'll talk about the irony of that at the very end of the sermon. One of the other reasons why we're difficult to talk to, or we find it difficult to talk with God, is that God is clear, but he's uncensorious. This is a really interesting point in the age of social medias and, and when, we, um, when we cancel people. One of, the really, really, one of the really interesting things is that God doesn't cancel his naysayers and gainsayers like you might think he would. Why does God let all these voices in the world gainsay him, say that what he believes and what he says is false, right? Going all the way back to, to Genesis 3, like, have you ever read Genesis 3 and thought, where is God? Is he literally out for a walk? Right? Like, Adam and Eve are there, right? The serpent comes, and he's, he's pretty clever in his line. I mean, like, he clearly has the two of them outmatched logically, right? He's an authority. He's confident. He says something that's relatively persuasive, and God doesn't show up. Why doesn't God go, uh-uh? No, 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 no. Like, he's wrong. I don't know if you know this. The snake's a liar. He's really Satan. And like, why doesn't that happen? Why does God not show up at all? Does it bother you? Has it ever bothered you? It bothers me. And one of the things that you see throughout Scripture is, is that God says something perfectly clearly, and then he just lets it be. And he doesn't scurry around like a modern parent, like trying to be like, no, no, really, no, 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 really, no, no, really. Like, sometimes I feel like dignity as a parent is you have a, you have a set amount of dignity, it's divided, and then it's divided by the number of times you, re, you repeat yourself. You know what I mean? It does no good. Like, if you have 100% dignity, you say it one time. The minute you say it twice, it, the, your dignity is divided at 50% for each time you said it. And like, you just—but I think you actually, like, lose 10% every time. So it's like, now it's like 45% twice. And if you say it three times, you do the math, okay? And God doesn't behave like that. He, he says what he says. And it's not like God doesn't repeat himself. He repeats himself in multiple generations. He shows what he's trying to tell us in many ways. But he doesn't come at our elbow every time a liar lies to us and says, no, 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 that's not right. That's not right. Don't believe them. He lets liars lie. Because, well, I don't know all the reasons. But because if you're going to listen to him, you're going to listen to him. If you're going to trust him, it's because you believe the kind of person he is. It's not because he says, yuh-huh, more times than the liar says, nuh-uh. Right? That one of the passages in this is uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12. The Apostle Paul says this, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. He says this, They are perishing, or they perish, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So when, when he says they're perishing, he, the reference is not to predestination. Like, well, they're predestined to, to perish. No, 
they are perishing because of where their heart is. Because they don't want to believe the truth, what does that make them susceptible to? Any lie, particularly those that are compelling and tell you what you want to hear. That is, we could do all kinds of wickedness, and I'll give you everything that you want. Counterfeit miracles and all kinds of evil. And he says, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so they will be condemned who have not believed in the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. So what that passage says is, is that God tragically will give us what we insist we want. It doesn't mean that if you've ever had a time in your life where you didn't want to know the truth, God is going to give you lies to believe so that you can go to hell. That's not what it says. What he's saying is, is that if, if in constant intention, in personal faith, we choose to believe lies, we choose to become the kind of person, we choose to be the person who believes lies, lies will be supplied for us sufficiently so as to deceive us and ultimately contribute to the increase of our condemnation. And if we want to believe the truth, we will be able to see that they're lies. But it's hard for us because we think that God should be there every time somebody says something that's not true, that God should be there to defend himself again. That's not how it works. God tells the truth. It's right here. He's shown himself in Jesus Christ. He said exactly what he's like a thousand times in all kinds of different ways, and either you read it, either you pursue it, either you believe it, and you're changed by it, or you want something he's not going to provide. The other, one of the reasons why we also have a hard time with God is, is that um, his revelation isn't based on what we want, or it's, and it's not complete. He doesn't tell us everything we want to know about him. It's instrumental. That is, he, he, has a, he has a particular goal, and he's working out that goal, and that's all he reveals to us. You can see this in Deuteronomy 29-29. The first two-thirds of this are pretty famous, and then people stop here usually. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. That is, he has a secret will he has not told us about that belong to him and not to us. And then it says, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That's really great. What God has spoken, we have. That's a great thing. But listen to what it says here. It says, that, or in order that, we may follow all the words of this law. Meaning, in that context, in the first five books of the Bible, God had told them everything he told them in such a way as it belonged to them for, and their children forever so that they could believe it and do it. Do you understand? One of the things that um, modern Christianity really suffers from, especially in places like the United States, is we really believe that what we're doing right now is Christian, that this is Christianity. It's, it, and it sort of is, but it's not what it, Christian faith really is, which is, living and obeying and serving and acting as though and be growing in as people the image of Christ and living like it in loving service of others in the world. Now part of that is to worship God and direct our attention to him, which we do now, but that's just a little—that's a part of it. And if we don't recognize that God's revelation is operative, it's like instructions to put something together. It's operative information. It's not just whatever you want to hear or whatever you think is complete then we're going to be really upset with how he reveals himself. Does that make sense? Now, a couple applications of this would be, one, um, our pursuit of God's revelation has to be God-centered. Both of the verses connected here say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Genesis 3, trusting God was the beginning of their growth in faith that they didn't do. In Exodus 20, going up onto that mountain, walking into that thick darkness, and finding God as he really is so that the fear of the Lord would be instilled in their heart was step number one in the covenant. Do you understand? 
The fear of the Lord taking God so absolutely dramatically seriously. In real fear, it says in Isaiah 66, God says, who's the person that I'm going to look to to be, to be with, to be with them and for them to be with me in the whole earth? Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Who will prepare a place for me? Where am I going to dwell? He says, I'm looking for two criteria. Somebody who is humble at heart and who trembles at my words. Right? Does that mean that God is looking for somebody who is really weak and easily scared? Do you think that's what that verse means? No, it means somebody who, who knows who they are before God and who takes God's word so seriously and God so seriously that it affects them in, in a, a really deep way, decisively in all areas of their life. And he's like, that's what I'm looking for. That's the only thing I'm looking for, and that's what I'm looking for. And the reason he says that is so that you and I can say, I want to be that person. That's what God's looking for. It's so clear. It's, it's so hard, but it's so clear. I could be that person. It doesn't matter when you were born, how old you are, what gender you are, what sex you are, or what your experience are, how much you failed. None of that matters relative to the one to whom he will look. He looks to the one who is humble at heart, knows who they are before God, and trembles at his word. Receives his revelation like a disciple, like somebody who knows he has authority and knows he stands to gain infinitely from the truths in it. And that they'll change him, that they'll possess them. Right? The second is real seeking. In Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I, I don't know if that's ever happened, that a human being has ever sought God with everything in their heart. Um, but if, if we pursue it at all, God comes a long way to help us. But to seek God with all your heart means something like with everything that's inside of you, with nothing, withhold, nothing withheld, nothing holding you back. No, there's no asterisk. There's no limitation. You have no prenup. There's no contract that limits what God can and will do in your life. You are—you're seeking the truth and the truth in God completely. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added to you, it says in Matthew's gospel. Right? And I, 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 I feel like I talk to a lot of people who expect God to make an exhibition of himself revelation-wise, and they don't really seek him with all their heart. They've never really done that. So, so many people, so many younger people, oftentimes growing up in the church, they've been all around all these people who believe in God and figuring out what it means for them in their hearts to seek God with all their heart when their life is just filled with all kinds of crazy anxieties and worries coming from the world around them. But that literally, if you read Matthew 7, that's literally the context, right? Worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, all the worries of life. Jesus says, instead of doing that, Seek God's righteousness in his kingdom, and all these other things will be added to you, right? You want to get through adolescence? You want to get through college? You want to get through whatever life stage you're in? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness based on what he has revealed about himself, how he's spoken and shown himself, and everything else will be added to you. You'll get through, right? And the third is practice-based. Remember, these are directions for assembly. They're instrumental. They have a specific purpose. And if you come to God for him to just tell you stuff because you just want to know stuff, he has no motivation to meet you there, because what does that do? He's looking for someone who's humble in heart and who trembles at his word. If you just want to learn stuff about him, you have no interest in like knowing him and trembling before him and, and serving him with all your heart and submitting to him with all your life, why would he? He's, he'd be hurting you. He'd be like increasing your arrogance and your desire to treat his word incredibly lightly. Why would he do that? Why would he contribute to your brokenness? Why would he hurt you by adding to the very attitude that makes his inter intervention of rescue not work. Right? Okay, 
third is God's revelation is perfect for us. Is that what that means? Um, all of our attitude about like how this isn't good enough, it's actually all wrong. God's revelation is set up so beautifully and so perfectly. It's exactly what we need if what we need is an intervention to lead us to redemption for him to capture our hearts that has to be rooted in a moral confrontation and a demonstration of his love, right? Um, sometimes people think that like when we talk about God's revelation, all we mean is the written Bible. And the Bible is the Word of God written, right? Jesus is the Word of God enfleshed. The Bible itself says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That is, they, it says day after day, they pour forth speech. They reveal. Does that make sense? We are supposed to preach Christ. Jesus said that if we love each other in the church, the whole world will know that we're his disciples. What does that mean that we're doing as the church? We're revealing the love of God. There are numerous ways in which God is revealing himself. Some more natural, some more special. Some more general, some more norming. What I mean by general norming is if you take, if you take, say, creation, say, if you took 50 people and you said, okay, we're going to write down what creation tells us about God. And they all wrote something down, right? Are you going to get one answer? Right? You're going to get a bunch of different answers. Some might be right. Some might be wrong. Some will be confused. Why? Because creation has been affected by the curse. The curse has harmed creation. For example, there's a lot of pain in creation, right? There's a lot of stuff that goes wrong. There's natural disasters, right? Like what do hurricanes tell us about God? That he likes killing people, right? So like what you learn from creation is partly broken by the falls, how the fall has affected creation and what side of that we look at. If you look at the cursed part of how creation is groaning, you'll learn everything demonic and cursed about God relative to creation. You'll think God is a devil. But how do you take the two apart? Well, see, the scriptures— and the work of Jesus Christ demonstrates what God is like. That norms or tells us how to interpret that which is more general, especially if that general thing is, is harmed by the curse, right? So human beings, like, if you're like, well, what, well, if I bear the image of God, what can I learn about God by being myself or by being around you who's made in the image of God, right? And if you're mean to me, do I learn that God is mean? No, your humanity is harmed by the curse, it is a revelation of God naturally, and that he made you to bear his image, but it's a general revelation, and it's harmed by the curse. So to understand what that means, I turn to the perfect bearer of the image of God and what he shows and speaks about what it means to be renewed in that nature by the Holy Spirit in its presence. So I understand that the image of God is this beautiful, incredible thing, and I understand how it's been cursed and harmed and broken because I'm looking both to the norming re and special revelations as I interpret God's natural revelation. But what God says is even harmed by the curse, these natural revelations have a lot to teach us and a lot to tell us. And the, the weird thing for us is we as the church are kind of in the middle of this. We're human beings. We bear the image of God. We're part of the sacred history of God's revelation of himself. In a lot of ways, we're, natural and, we're a natural and general revelation. We're just people, right? But we've been— We've believed in Jesus Christ. We're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We're guided by the scriptures. We should be moving from an increasingly to be like Jesus such that people should be able to look to us— whoops, sorry— and see a special revelation and a norming revelation as the church. And these revelations, all of them together, have the ability to reach us in many different ways with all kinds of different insights coming in on, at different moments in different ways so that one person can go through a period of coming to God where like, they literally do go on a hike and they're like, they see the majesty of something and they, and they, and they have this intuitive sense there's more here than just the mountains. 
right? Or this means more than water over time. And they, they know something, and yet they don't know what that means yet. Does that make sense? And later they come across a church that actually loves Jesus, where people are striving to be like him, and they see those people sinning, but they see those people repenting and forgiving and changing and growing, and they go, something is happening here that is more than just people bouncing off of each other. And then they hear Jesus Christ preached, the Son of God, crucified and risen, living out perfect humanity among all people, calling people to repentance and faith, and they realize that they've heard, they, now they know what the mountains mean, and they understand why the people are the way they are, and they understand that it is rooted in this one who has been crucified and risen for us, and then they read the scriptures, and they learn more, and they put the pieces together, and it grows. God's revelation is multifaceted. It's holistic, and it's perfect, and it's everywhere, and we have to have eyes to see it. It's all pointing towards what he has ordered to do. And his secret will, it's, to, it's, it's glory. It's his own glorification through our glorification. But he hasn't told us all about that. Revelation is an unfolding mystery, right? And some people think, well, like by now it's like 75% unfolded. I'm guessing it's like 3 or 4% unfolded at this point. I don't really know, right? But God is bringing things to glory. His revealed will is he's bringing things to redemption. What we know he's doing is he's, everything is focused on redemption, so here's some applications for this, and we'll be done. What that means is, is that though God has not and will not make an exhibition of himself, God is and has been revealing himself to us in the ways we most desperately need, in specific ways that meet our human needs, meant to work past both our suppression of the truth and our limited perceptions and our narrowed view so that we can receive this loving intervention that can change us forever. Do you understand? Here's some ways, here, but here's some realizations that we have to make that he's told us. The first is, is that we need to seek the truth instead of suppress it. You need to realize that typical humanity, the way we're naturally going to be when we wake up in the morning, is we're going to be truth suppressors. You have to believe that about yourself. If you believe you are a good person who always really does want to know the truth about yourself, nothing can get through the cloud of that delusion. You have to realize that either God is true and you are a liar, <laughs> right? Or you are true and God is a liar. And if you do that, then also every time you come to God to learn more about him in some form of his revelation, you will expect to be contradicted. You'll expect for him to say something difficult to you. But over time, you will come to invite those corrections, invite those contradictions, and desire to hear more about what it means to be like him, right? The second thing is, is that you need to identify the gainsayers and stop listening to them. Right? There's, there's so many people just willing to tell you lies, and we listen to them. There, there's a number of places in the prophets where God says, I speak to my people, and they just love people who will lie to them. You love people who lie to you. You love people who devour you. He says this over and over to his people. It's, it's not less true now, right? And I know that you might be like, well, Nick, do you just want me to like only be Christian all the time? No, like only do Christian stuff and Christian, Christian, Christian. And like, do you really think we're like super close to being so unworldly and like so focused on the beauty of the revelation of God that we're going to like overdo it? Right? Yeah, because you spent— 22 hours reading your Bible last week and zero hours watching TV and playing video games. Right? You did the opposite. 
If you're a normal American Christian, you read your Bible for like maybe 40 minutes over the course of the whole week, and you watch TV or watch videos or play video games on the average of 7 to 12 hours per day. So if you were like, what I was like, look, we should probably turn to God and, and get rid of some of these gainsayers and focus on him. You're like, well, what, do you want to be a fundamentalist? That's a terrible objection. So you got to start with reality, where we're really at, you know? Okay, sorry. Here we go. The third thing is, is that um, you will receive from God in direct relationship to your submission to God. He who trembles at my word. Right? You, it's counterintuitive. But it, see, if the thing that enslaves you is God, the more you submit to him, the more you'll be enslaved. Does that make sense? But if you submit, but if the thing enslaving you is sin and death and hell and the lies that we believe and what we're wrapped up in and the malice of our hearts, if you believe, if that's what's enslaving you and that is just telling you God is the enslaving one so that you'll keep buying into that garbage and God says, I can free you from it, then the more you submit to God, the more actually free you will become. God is constantly saying, beloved, it is sin that is enslaving you, right? It's like, it's like a kid believing that at, when a parent tells them what to do and shapes them over a period of years to help them be able to face the world and not be the world's slave, that they were the slave master all along. When no, they were the one making you strong enough to be free all this time so that they could release you into the world and you could be the person you were meant to be and not everybody else's slave. But in order for that to happen, you had to submit to your parents' authority and learn from them as an unmitigated student so that you could learn it and be a master of it by the time you went out and faced those who would be your masters for your ill, not for your good. And so W stands for worldliness, G for godliness. The less we submit ourselves as unconditional disciples to the teacher who is Jesus, the less free we will be. And the more you submit yourself entirely to the master who is Jesus, the more free you will become. And the more we read the Bible with like, well, God explain this to me, and I have some critical questions about this passage, and don't you blah, 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 blah. And when is there going to be a good teacher for this Bible study? And why does Nick have to talk so long? And blah, 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 blah. Like, you, you, know, you know how somebody got raised from the dead in the Bible? Because Paul went somewhere, and he preached all night. And this guy was there, and he fell asleep and fell out the window and died. And so Paul went and raised him from the dead. And you know what it says? And then he taught the rest of the night. Like missionaries go to China all the time. They have a church service. It lasts 11 hours. Right? Like we have no idea like how lazy we are. And I love, listen, I love all the stuff that just serves it up to me. I love that. I put my brain on the shelf and click that video and everybody did everything for me. Like, I, like I, lo I lo listen, I, my wife made me an omelet this morning. I didn't lift a finger. So great. But she got a little stronger and I got a little weaker. You know what I mean? And um, if we live in a world where everything's done for us, you better learn how to go to the gym. If your job isn't g building up your health, you better go figure out a way to build up your health. And we live in this in incredibly lazy culture which is fine because it's also convenient and it's nice and it's wealthy and there's a lot of nice things about it. But every minute you're getting weaker. And if you don't choose to pursue God, then you end up being like those, those people driving those electric 
seats around them. Remember the movie Wally? There was like, they couldn't even, just drinking soda, they couldn't even walk. That's what happened. That's what you, that's what a lot of us look like spiritually. If you could see your spiritual self, that's what we'd look like, you know? Okay, let's keep moving. Sorry. Um, Revelation, there's a lot of it. Like, if you look at the Bible, you're like, the Bible's kind of long. Yes, it is kind of long. It's actually not that long, right? C.H. Dodd was asked one time, if all the New Testaments in the Bible in the world were lost, how much of the New Testament could he replicate from memory in Greek? And he said, well, all of it. And they were like, all of it? He was like, well, yeah, it's just a little book, right? I mean, people don't realize this, but like, if you read through the—I mean, just go on like your app and see how long it would take to listen to the whole New Testament. It's less than two days. You can listen to the whole New Testament faster than you can listen to David Copperfield by Dickens. I know, because I've done both. <laughs> but before you get to all of that, you need to remember that like the center of that revelation is Jesus Christ himself. You want to know what creation means? You will, you will see it in the one who spoke that creation as the word of God in Jesus Christ himself. You want to know what it means to bear the image of God? You can see it in Jesus Christ, living, acting, speaking, cru- crucified and risen. It is in Jesus Christ. You want to know what it means, right, to live in sacred history, to know what time we live in and what we're meant to do and how we should act towards our neighbor. You can see it in Jesus Christ. He is the center and everything moves out from him and is the interpreting principle of all things. And so to that extent, you will never understand Christian revelation. You'll never understand God's revelation in any form until you begin to understand Jesus being the center of it and him defining its perfection. Fourth is, you're you're never going to get a pass. You're never going to put your brain on the shelf. If you—remember, you're the thing under construction. (laughs) He's coming for you. He's coming from your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants all of it. He's going to transform all of it. He's going to work in all of it. None of it, none of it gets a pass. If you, if you expect God to reveal himself in a way where you just get to click on stuff and just sit back and drool, it's never going to be that way. It's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. It's going to be exhilarating. It's going to be really interesting. It's going to be terrifying. It's going to be like walking into a dark cloud with thunder and lightning and trumpet sounds, and you have no idea what's really in there. But you have the word of a good God that it's going to be good, and he's going to reveal himself to you. That's what it's going to feel like, right? And so let me give you some good news on the back end here, which is brace yourself for wonder. If you really pursue the God who is there, and you really want to know what he has for you, you really want to see his revelation, you want as much truth as you can possibly have, you're willing to be his disciple and to tremble at his word, you want to get from here to there, you want to see all there is to see, even if you go into that cloud and there's so much brightness that kills you, like you, you would rather, you would rather die than not experience what really is there. You're ready to seek him with all your heart. The Bible says that when we do that, what we, ex- what we will experience is we will become like him in his death and somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. We will be transformed into ever-increasing glory. We will participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil, desire, di- evil desires. We will participate in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We will see truths we could never have seen otherwise. Like, y- you, you will see what you won't have to be like— famous. You don't have to make big exhibitions of yourself on social media, but you will experience what it's like to bear the image of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And you will walk with him through ever-increasing glories until your ultimate glorification with him. I want to end really quickly with just a couple of applications for us as a church, because that's what this series is supposed to be about. What is that? What kind of church are we going to be? Um, very quickly. 
a church that does not apologize for what God reveals about himself. That doesn't mean we need to be snarky and we need to attack people. We need to try to like be mean and like be fighting fundies. But it means that we don't back down. We don't apologize for what God says and for who he is. Um, there's one um, Bible preacher I like who calls it um, winsome tartness. Winsome tartness. He's like, you need to tell other people what the truth is and you need to make sure that they walk away from you realizing you don't care what they think. That you care about them, but you don't—what they think has no effect on you. Because everybody thinks it does, because we're incredibly social creatures. So people say their truth to you, and they're, they're like, you don't have to believe it, but you should, you know? And they think that it affects you, and you're scared now because they told you what they think. And he's like, what you need to let people walk away with is you, what God says, and that what they think, you don't care. But you care about them, right? Win some tartness. I kind of like that. I think that's probably close to where we have to get tuned to. The second thing is we have to recognize that it's our job to, to make this revelation known. And listen, sales is going to be hard because God's not making an exhibition of himself. I get that. But God is enrolling people to be the scholars of heaven. Like, he's, he is going to, he's going to glorify and save and sanctify and transform anybody who will enroll. And if it's five people, it's five people. And if it's 500 million people, it's 500 million people. That doesn't matter. What matters is, is that everyone who comes to enroll themselves under the leadership of the master who is Christ will find unspeakable wonder. And yes, you have to persuade them in the name of Jesus to enter the dark cloud of unknowing, right? But you know who's in there. You know what he's offering, and they will find what they need in the face of Christ Jesus, right? And we can—that is the main reason we exist, and that is what our lives are meant to be. And at— and part of that revelation, remember, and this cannot change, part of that revelation is us ourselves, the church. We, the people of the church, the disciples of Jesus, as we live with each other and love one another, are one of the revelations of God. Right? We're not inerrant like the Bible. <laughs> We're not perfectly in the image of God like Jesus. But we are the bride of Christ. We show what it means to love each other and to be loved by God. And that cannot be taken from us, and we cannot forfeit it. And it's not just difficult, it's an incredible dignity, and it's part of God's revelation to us. Because in dealing with each other and putting up with each other is one of the ways that God intervenes and makes us loving. I'll read two verses for you, then we're done. Worship band, you guys can come up. In Exodus 34, this is what it said about Moses, the one who went into the cloud. It says, After all the Israelites came near him, he gave them all the commands of the Lord that was given to him on Mount Sinai, because he was the only one who would go up there. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what he had been commanded. They saw that his face was radiant. And then Moses put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. I mean, think about this. Do you see the irony? He goes into this dark cloud, and he comes out a light bulb. Isn't that interesting? He goes into the darkness, wondering what he will find in there, and he finds such radiance that when he walks out, his face is so bright that he puts a veil over it so other people aren't blinded by it. Right? 
And you, you might think, well, that's just Moses. He was special. And what the apostle says in 2 Corinthians is that, no, he was special in his day. But in Christ crucified and risen with the presence of the Spirit, we are all more special than Moses. Or can be. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 18 says this, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, not one special Moses, but anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. God, as we um, think about your Spirit and how you work and how you have revealed yourself and what is unbrandable about it and what we what we know and what we don't know and how much there is that we don't know that we don't know we don't know. We pray that you would draw us to your truth. You would draw us to what you have spoken, that you would draw us to the certainty of the foundation of what you've shown in Christ, and that you would fill us with a growing wonder, that you would lead us and help us to, to seek you with all of our hearts, that you would put in us the gravity that we would tremble at your word, and that you would make us not the vacuous, lazy, screen gazers of our generation, but that you would make us people filled with the divine potency, with faces radiating the glorious love of God in ever-increasing glory because of Christ. Help us to believe in you and trust in you and to take in what you've given and to believe what you have revealed. In Jesus' name.